from the Financial Times in London, I'm Darren Dodd and this is FT News. The UK is among six EU member states referred to Europe's highest court this month over a failure to clean up significant and persistent air pollution. Separately, the government published its clean air strategy for consultation, setting out plans for strict emissions targets to reduce the tiny particles of soot and other compounds that are damaging to health. So just how bad is the situation and what can we do about it? FT Health convened a panel of experts to find out. Science editor Clive Cookson spoke to Laurie Laban Langton of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, Ian Mudway, an air toxicity specialist at King's College London, and Darren Messam of the Low Carbon Vehicle Partnership. Here are some edited extracts from their discussion. Laurie, if you take a historical perspective, London now is very clean. If you compare it with London, the Great Smog of 1952, and think that in Victorian times, Impressionist painters came here because they loved the pollution. If you go to the current exhibition at the National Gallery called Monet and Architecture, he wanted to see a sort of smoggy, misty effects. He wanted to see the Thames in a slightly lurid, polluted glow. Well, we've moved far beyond then. So in a global perspective and a historical perspective, are things that bad? There's obviously been enormous improvement since London was dominated by smog, particularly after the Second World War with the great smogs that we saw over many terrible weekends which were profiled in The Crown, the Netflix programme, to great effect. Um, <laughs> and it's fantastic that that has changed. But the problem is still very acute and one of the biggest differences now is you can't see it to be able to paint lovely pictures of the horrendous effects of that. The healthcare community, which the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change represents the voice of in large part, sees this as a very, very serious problem. The Royal College of Physicians, one of the representative bodies for many health professionals across the UK, has concluded that attributable deaths or or early deaths related to air pollution is as much as as 40,000 across the UK. Now, that's much less than other nations, and there are cities in a much, much worse position than London, of which Beijing is one. But at the same time, Healthcare professionals want to reduce any harm to anyone at all. And one of the most exciting elements of all this for the healthcare community is that in acting on this problem, we could also realise the extraordinary potential we have to make a better, cleaner, more efficient, safer world. And action on air pollution isn't just action to reduce the problem itself, it's also action to unlock those positive health benefits that we could have anyway, even if the problem didn't exist. Okay, so Ian... Tell us what the health problems are being caused by polluted air. And you specialise in toxicology of the lung, but how much damage is this doing to people in London? And then extending that, how much damage is it doing worldwide? The first question you just asked about epochs of air pollution, I often think is the wrong question. It's a bit like saying, should we be worried about infectious health in the United Kingdom today because we don't have much cholera? It's just not the right question. We now have different air pollution. And I think it's better to focus on the pollution you have than enter into some sort of league table competition to see whether you score slightly better on one type of pollution for one sort of city versus the other. So the question really needs to be framed on what is the pollution in your area, the area you have control over, and what are the range of health impacts? So premature death is an incredibly difficult thing to explain statistically. It's very obvious that one of the conceptual problems you have with air pollution is that it's very difficult to identify somebody you can point out and say, that person died because of air pollution. That's very, very, very difficult. Because what you're really talking about is 
a long-term chronic effect on the whole population. It's a slow burn. It's not simply that the air pollution that we have in our cities today is invisible. It's that the health effects that the population in our cities are going to suffer are displaced in time, rather like cigarette smoking. People can smoke relatively without symptoms in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It takes a while for the consequences of their misspent youth to catch up with them. Air pollution is a bit like that when you look at the bigger numbers. Because as soon as you have a number like 40,000 deaths, every journalist in the world wants to know what the next number is. And actually, it doesn't really matter if suddenly it's 35 or 29. It's too many. And that's not even the full cost of air quality. Because beneath the fact that people will live shorter lives than they should do, if, you know, if they've been born with a British kite standard mark you know, stamped on them saying your life expectancy is 85 years and they've lived in a polluted environment and they've lost six months. Everybody will sit there going, well, you know, what, six months you know, here or there, really? But it's not just the six months you've lost. It's the quality of your life in the final third of your life when that quality of life is incredibly important. And then the things which are being affected sometimes can seem almost difficult to wrap your head around when we think about air pollution as being something that you inherently breathe. Because most of the deaths aren't respiratory. Most of the deaths are cardiovascular. Mm. But then it has evolved. And it can evolve in such a way that people shake their heads saying air pollution causes, causes everything. My goodness, now, it even causes Alzheimer's disease, doesn't it? It's only a matter of time before we find out that air pollution causes Crohn's and a whole multitude of autoimmune conditions. And the reality is, of course, that the evidence suggests that it does because it contributes towards that progressive low level of inflammation in your body, that low level of sort of oxidation within your bodily system, which at the time doesn't have an effect, but cumulatively over 20 or 30 years begins to manifest in diseases. And the diseases that you're going to get earlier very much depend on your genetics. And so it is a much bigger issue than I think people have seen. And again, I think the big mistake is to think of it as being invisible. I think the real challenge is that the effects are slow burners. Just before I move on to Darren, there is also an uptick in acute illness, isn't there? It's not entirely long-term. But when you look at the big numbers, so there's no doubt. I mean, I don't have to sit in a room with people who have asthma and explain to them about the health effects of air pollution. They're often better at telling us when there's an episode than we are and we measure it. They'll have symptoms before we have the first indications. If we have an individual with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they will get immediate symptoms. And people do die because of the exacerbation of their symptoms acutely. When you look at these big numbers, the 40,000 deaths, that's really the chronic long-term. That is the bigger burden of health effects. Okay, so let's turn to what we can do to mitigate air pollution in London. Darren, how much of the problem here is vehicles? And what can we do to reduce the impact of existing traffic and make sure that future traffic is less polluting? It varies according to what pollutant we're looking at, obviously. I think some of the key relevant statistics are that transport is reckoned to account for about 26% of CO2 in terms of UK emissions. I think that's actually understated because that's looking at direct emissions from the vehicles. It's not looking at the CO2 from building the roads or from making the cars. And it's worth just keeping in mind that our transport CO2 emissions are currently rising. If we look at a different form of pollution like oxides of nitrogen, then much depends on where you're taking the reading. And it's reckoned about 80% 
of roadside knocks comes directly from traffic. I think in terms of what we can do, it's important just to look at the historical context. Think back to the Industrial Revolution. We created a very high emission business model for our economy, and we've really spent the post-war period trying to get rid of that and improve the position. I just looked up some recent stats just to get this into context. I just chose 1990 as a baseline, because I figured most people in the room would have some sense of what life was like in 1990. Just think before 1990, it was a lot worse. But since 1990, we've reduced our CO2 emissions by 42%, our NOx emissions by 71%, our sulphur dioxide emissions by 95%, and our particulates by 54 to 55%, depending on which one you're looking at. And those changes have come about through various different mechanisms. When I was at Shell, I worked on the removal of lead from petrol. Petrol up until the early 90s had lead in it as a lubricant. And then I worked on the reduction of sulphur from diesel. And in each of those instances, you had a different set of drivers. You had consumers wanting that change. You had media calling for that change the medical associations and the medical profession calling for those changes, as well as industry figuring out ways in which you could actually practically do it and consumers not just calling for it but being able to afford to pay for it. And I think you have to go back to here that everybody wants clean air to breathe and the technology exists to do clean transport, clean energy, clean production today. The question is, how are we going to pay for it and who's going to pay for it? And the reason it's political is that there are always winners and losers. We could introduce a totally clean air zone in London tomorrow, but in doing that, we would have to remove highly polluting vehicles from the road and replace them. So who's going to pay for that transition? If you're a truck operator, a van operator, a car or a motorcycle operator, you've got then the penalty of that falling on you. So that the technological solutions exist. The roadmap for delivery really needs to be defined to create a level playing field for industry to act. And then the decisions, the hard decisions about who's going to pay for what need to be worked out in order to make these things happen. What do you think, Laurie, from the point of view of health campaigners, is the best way to achieve the sort of improvements that we're talking about? Many of the strategies that are being talked about and consulted upon do put a number of cards on the table which makes sense to have place there to link the air pollution problem to roads to other sources like domestic burning of fuels to then link that further to industrial strategy to ensure that our renewal of our economy and the development of innovative technologies at the frontier are linked to solving this problem it looks good but the two things that hold that together will ensure whether it's successful or not are appropriate ambition and then the resourcing to ensure that that occurs. And at the moment, we fear that those two things are not forthcoming. To talk about a ban on certain types of engine well into the future, when the problem is affecting us now and has done for many years, may not be appropriate signal of ambition. And to ask local authorities in areas around the country to look into clean air zones and maybe provide some legal powers is not enough without resourcing. Some of these councils can barely provide adult social care to their citizens, for them to be able to ensure that they're properly funded clean air zones that actually cycle over vehicle fleets in the appropriate time is just not a realistic thing to see. So ambition and resourcing are the two areas that we think are not being delivered at the moment. What about regulation? 
You can also just ban things, can't you? And Sadiq Khan has proposed that there will be an enhanced congestion charge or pollution levy from 2019 and 2020 on the older diesels and the worst petrol cars. Will that cost? Maybe it'll raise revenue. In the past, the congestion zone in London was very successful in raising revenues to reinvest back into the bus fleet, for example, with limited effects as time went on, congestion patterns changed. Regulation, of course, has to be part of that, and that's where we think the ambition is not there. And from central government in particular, in a country that's highly centralised, if there's not regulatory action from central government, then local authorities, however progressive they are, including, you could probably include London in there, are left out in the open because it's a coordination problem across the country. Because even if London were to ban certain vehicles, they would be sold through second-hand markets to Manchester and the problem would remain. Ian, as a toxicologist, as a medic, how much do you get into this policy issue? I've been in this game for 25 years Mm. and it was was nice once, it was quite niche. (laughs) Um, I could just stand in the lab, do my science and at no point did I have people shouting at me saying I wasn't saying what they wanted to hear. So can I avoid the fact that it's developed a political dimension? Mm. No, but I do think that there is demand on people like me to present neutral evidence to inform sensible political decisions so that we can have evidence-based policy. I come from a background, and this is the oddest thing for me to say, but I think you have to regulate. They always say there's regulation on one hand and education on the other. Education with cigarette smoking didn't really work. Mm. Regulation Mm. and creative taxation really, really works. Okay, Horrible things to say, but they do deliver change. And also regulation creates a level playing field. As long as regulation applies to everybody in the business community, they know where they stand and they know that nobody's getting a competitive advantage over and above them. But technology also, because there are two very successful examples Mm -hmm. of where technology has worked, and that's lead and petrol Mm -hmm. and low sulfur fuels, Mm -hmm. because low sulfur fuels created a significant reduction in particle number concentrations in cities in Europe, and no policy has ever achieved that. It wasn't even a policy, it was just a modal move in fuel. So it plays a role, but you need to have tough regulation. And there are winners and there are losers. But I think the point you're making is that this is really about getting the unnecessary journeys off the road. Mm -hmm. Not cutting off the arteries of our economy, but actually freeing up road capacity to allow our cities to work more effectively. If you want to read more about this topic, make sure you sign up to your weekly free health briefing at ft.com slash health. If I would have known back then what I know today, there would not be a chance that I would have pursued this opportunity because it's been a sort of roller coaster ride, both mentally and physically. It's been much tougher than I could ever have imagined back then. We're back. Startup Stories is returning with a new set of entrepreneurs sharing their insights about the joys and challenges of starting a business. So look out for the first episode in our new series of Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times from Monday.